the reason why this is important is because the EU always uh, presents itself. It always boasts of the fact that it is uh, on the occupying the moral high ground. And I think that kind of uh, image that they've created has been really important for the EU in attempting to sell itself, in, in attempting to begin to, co- to solve its long-standing legitimacy crisis, which it has never resolved, but which whenever it's in, in trouble, uh, relies on mobilizing precisely the kind of people that have been busted over this scandal. Since mid-December, a corruption scandal has been unfolding in Brussels. It's a scandal that could soon begin to rock the European Union's very foundations. Eva Kaili, a 44-year-old member of the European Parliament, was detained by Belgian authorities along with three other suspects, including fellow MEP Mark Tarabella and Kaili's partner, an assistant to another MEP, for allegedly accepting large bribes from foreign government officials in exchange for whitewashing the image of those governments in Brussels. Qatar was frontline of the scandal, but so was Morocco, and more recently, even Mauritania. As this episode goes to press, no less than 1.5 million euros in cash have been seized, much of which was lying around the house of Kylie's father, who is also ensnared in the scandal. With the World Cup then about to take place in Qatar and amid widespread allegations of unsafe working conditions for migrant workers hired to build the facilities, Kylie and her fellow suspects have their work cut out for them. Now, the scandal's implications cannot be overstated. While the EU has long labored under critiques of its democratic legitimacy, the moral legitimacy of its leaders has largely gone unquestioned. That all changes now. To discuss the repercussions of Qatargate, we have with us this week Frank Ferrady and Thomas Fozzi. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Regular listeners of this show will have realized by now that there is really no European crisis that this podcast will shy away from covering. From the Eurozone crisis of the 2010s to the more recent worldwide bout of COVID, from migration pressures of the EU's borders to spiraling inflation, the EU seems constantly battered by an endless stream of difficulties, uneasily hopping from one crisis to the next, all covered in varying depth on this podcast. Those difficulties have doubtless undermined the bloc's democratic legitimacy, but they haven't necessarily undermined its moral legitimacy. In other words, European officials can be often seen as too idealistically out of touch, but they're very seldom seen as bribable or venal. This may be beginning to change as the European Parliament is hit by an unprecedented cash-for-favors scandal whose proportions are still expanding as of this speaking, involving the governments of Qatar, Morocco, and Mauritania. And today we are delighted to discuss the repercussions from the scandal, uh, scandal dubbed uh, Qatargate, and what it reveals about the European Union. We have with us on one end of the line, Frank Ferrady. Uh, Frank is an academic sociologist in a formal life, and he's currently the executive director of MCC Brussels. MCC is Matthias Corvinus Talent Development Institution in Hungary. And on the other end of the line, we have Thomas Fazzi, who is uh, um, a widely published author, a searing critic of the European project, and a columnist at Unheard and Compact. 
So without further ado, uh, gentlemen, let me uh, get right into the, the heart of the matter with something of a, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here in, in defense of the, the accused. Eva Kylie is the mother of a two-year-old two year child who has been kept away from her since being detained on the 10th of December, along with Mark Tabarella and a range of other suspects. They have both spent their entire Christmas breaks in jail, and their, their detention has been repeatedly renewed on Friday for another two months. So tell us, why are they being made to suffer this ordeal? What is it that they have done that warrants this uh, suffering? Walk us through what happened, Frank. I think what, what has happened is that um, through a series of investigations, it became very, very clear that some senior socialist politicians, uh, so-called socialist politicians, and their operatives have been involved in some shady deals with a number of foreign governments, and they've been bribed, being bribed quite systematically for some time. And I think in many respects, this uh, revelation uh, requires that uh, the individuals concerned, particularly the most uh, prominent individuals concerned, are really uh, sort of uh, targeted and, 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 and punished quite publicly. I think that's the reason why they've taken the unprecedented step of jailing them and, and, and not really allowing them uh, any uh, uh, ability to enjoy any kind of freedom. But I think the, the, the really big story here it's not the fact that there are a bunch of crooks uh, masquerading as uh, sanctimonious politicians, uh, which is something that we're used to at the national level. I think the big story here is that the most important focus of uh, EU legitimacy, the moral focus of legitimacy, which is the Human Rights Commission, Human Rights Committee, has been in, at the forefront this scandal mm -hmm. and, and many of the non-governmental organizations, the NGOs, have been complicit in systematic money laundering on a scale which uh, kind of beggars belief and has been going on for a very, very long time. And the reason why this is important is because the EU always uh, presents itself. It always boasts of the fact that it is uh, on the occupying the moral high ground. Unlike the ordinary grubby politicians in national parliament, they play this kind of, uh, they kind of perform this sanctity that we are so idealistic, we are so committed to human rights, we are above any of the day-to-day -day pragmatic affairs of, of, of politicking. And I think that kind of uh, image that they've created has been really important for the EU in attempting to sell itself, in, in attempting to begin to, to solve its long-standing legitimacy crisis, which it has never resolved, but which whenever it's in, in trouble, uh, relies on mobilizing precisely the kind of people that have been busted over this scandal. Yeah, and uh, Thomas, uh, shifting uh, gears to you, I mean, uh, you, you've, um, you've been, um, uh, you, you're used to sort of speaking to conservative audiences, even though you're you're a man of the left yourself. Uh, your, your your politics are, you know, someone could uh, place or consider them socialist. Um, it, are you are you concerned that this is? Uh, I mean, were you surprised that the uh, socialist party at the European level was so deeply? Uh, tainted by the scandal? And do you think it also, as Frank said, do you think it also compromises the sort of NGO industrial complex? 
Oh, I mean, absolutely. What Frank was saying is absolutely true. I mean, we know that there's uh, a lot, a lot of money sloshing around these um, the, these NGOs, and of course, uh, um, nominally left-wing or socialist politicians are the ones that tend to be uh, closest to these NGOs. And so, I think this naturally creates an environment that is prone to uh, <clears throat> to corruption. Um, and you know this doesn't just happen at the European level. I mean, we've recently had a case here in uh, in Italy as well, uh, involving um, uh, a guy named uh, Sumahoro, who was uh, who is the only black MP who was elected in the recent uh, elections, and who's very famous for his uh, migrants' rights activism and has been for a long time. He's a trade union organizer and he works with uh, illegal migrants in Italy, and he's been a kind of an idol of the left for. Uh, for, for quite some time now. Um, well, he's, you know, just a few days after being elected to parliament, he was uh, caught up in a, in a scandal involving his mother-in-law, who in fact um, runs a cooperative that hires migrant workers, uh, who's accused uh, of fraud and embezzlement for essentially underpaying or not paying uh, workers at all. And uh, now Sumahoro himself is under investigation, but, um, you know, several workers that have been interviewed uh, informally have said that, you know, uh, he, he was involved in sort of, quote unquote, fooling them. Uh, him and his wife, uh, by the way, they, uh, they're both accused by a lot of these workers to have played a role, in fact, in, uh, in this whole um, embezzlement scandal, which, uh, you know, involves hundreds of thousands of euros. So we're not talking uh, peanuts here. Um, now, you know, that said, I mean, I don't know if the rate of corruption is higher among left wing rather than uh, right wing politicians these days. I don't know if there's a if, if anyone's done uh, kind of a, uh, a quantitative study uh, or statistical study into that, it may, well, would be interesting to look, to, to look at. Um, I, I would say that certainly cases um, involving involving left wing politicians do tend to make more noise because they mm. uh, tend, you know, they concern people who tend to take the more high ground. Um, as as Frank was saying, I mean, it's not you know. Of course, the EU does it as as an at an institutional level, but you know, the left does it at, at all levels, <laughs> and I think this uh, uh, sort of plays into uh, a certain widespread um, how should I put it? I mean, uh, you know, tiredness, public tiredness, you know, with this kind of self righteous moralizing attitude of the you know contemporary left and so of course when someone from the left is uh is 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 involved in these uh, in these scandals of course you know it kind of tends to uh, uh confirm a lot of suspicions that people people have you know about kind of uh the, the fake veneer of of the contemporary uh, of the contemporary left and so i think you know this is in some ways connected to what frank was saying and so that's why i think you know they have to uh you know really go down hard on these uh, on these characters, you know, because this is you know this is one of the kind of uh, you know legitimizing pillars of not just the European Union but kind of the you know wider uh, left uh, narrative and left agenda more more in general, you know. And so I think the you know, I think they're being punished because they were uh, you know because they, they 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 were caught basically. You know, if if you if you if you if you do it, you're not supposed to get caught. You know. Uh, but I think more in general, uh, I think especially, uh, I completely agree with what Frank was saying. I mean, at the European level, I think there's, uh, I mean, I think really sort of kind of deep anger at the fact that, you know, that 
that that that you that the people at that level would engage in these kind of uh, of, of really kind of low, low level at the end of the day kind of um, uh, frauds. I mean, we're not. I mean, we're not talking huge amounts of money. You know, I think there's there's much more. Uh, there, there's there's a kind of a, a what I would call a legal structural corruption going on at the European level that is you know way worse than what than than the Qatargate scandal. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll get to that maybe uh, later. You know, so uh, so so I think you know uh, if we look at you know at this thing in purely monetary terms and and even in ethical terms, you know, I mean, I think what they've done is you know at the end of the day much worse than what happens in a perfectly legal way uh, at you know at the European level. Um, in, in different ways, you know, but so so I think you know there's there's kind of an, an, an unspoken agreement that you're really, that you're really not supposed to do these kinds of things, you know, at the in in Brussels. I think you know uh, m much more than you know there is that kind of understanding at the national level, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Thomas. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful because a lot of uh, people, especially conservatives, are delighted that this is principally. Uh, a scandal that afflicts the left, which it does. There is no doubt about it. But I think that uh, we have to understand that corruption uh, within the EU domain is an equal opportunity activity that involves all sectors of the political class, you know, from left to right. We have to be balanced in relation to this. And more importantly, I think that what uh, what is being overlooked here in looking at what is in fact the an extremely naive form of corruption, which is really taking place, is the more structural, institutionalized way in which the European Union lends itself to very corrupt behavior. And I think the reason that uh, a very important point that's been overlooked is that, in fact, what, what, is, what the European Union is based upon is actually to corrupting the incoming members of, of the European Parliament. You have to remember that one of the things that the European Commission and the European bureaucracy is committed in doing is basically to detach the different MEPs from the different countries from their national base. It's very much a, an imperial ambition mm -hmm. that tries to create a situation where the members of the European Parliament have as their primary loyalty the European mm -hmm. Union rather than the nation where they come from. And therefore, you find that very often, even many uh, uh, noble uh, sort of right-wing uh, populist politicians often go, go native when they are in Brussels. A, a lot of people uh, talk about the fact that many, many people who are in some shape or form opposed to many aspects of the European Union uh, almost get flattered and they, they get uh, tempted and, and they in a sense, begin to get bought off by all the opportunities that are available uh, uh, and, and which kind of uh, you know, strokes their ego through the European Union. So uh, for me, the corruption within the European Union is there all the time. It's totally institutionalized and it's directly cultivated as part of the political strategy of creating this little empire in, 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 in the middle of Europe. And we should really uh, always remember this. I think the one political fact or, or sociological fact that's overlooked is that uh, what we have in the European Union are politicians or you know, political operatives that are extremely distant from an electorate. 
they are very rarely accountable to the, to the public uh, in their own nation states. And because they are so detached from the public life, because they're so distant from the pressures that, let's say, a national political party would be subject to, they become, in a sense, far less restrained in the way they behave. So, for example, uh, I'm, I'm very much struck by the fact that at the moment, uh, yeah. you have a situation where the head of the commission's transport department has been flying business class to Qatar uh, and not acknowledging it. And, and just think that he seems to think that it's really cool. Now what's happened is that he's been uh, called up to account for his behavior. They had what they call a so-called investigation. And it's been reported, I think it was reported this morning, that the investigators decided that he had no, uh, nothing to answer for. And the man who signed off on this is the man who was implicated because the head of, he, he was the head of the investigation. So Henrik Hololei, the director general of the Commission Transports Department, who was charged with uh, corruption, was also the man that was in charge of the investigation. And, you know, him being, uh, you know, an, an obvious, you know, hustler, decided just to sign off to say that this is okay. In no other domain of public life would you have such, uh, you know, sort of overt and unashamed way of dealing with, uh, with a scandal such as this. And I think that this is something that goes on all the time. And the only difference with Quatargate is that it's brought in the NGOs into public life. It brought in the, the, moral, uh, the morally sanctimonious human rights committee precisely the ones that until now were appeared to be insulated from this. And it made us aware exactly that we're talking about an organization that is, uh, is institutionally corrupt, not just in relation to one issue, but most of the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I just wanted to add that, I mean, uh, you know, these kind of over naive kind of, you know, scandals, I mean, of, of people actually engaging in, overtly illegal uh, activity or you know activity, activity activities of corruption um you know uh aren't that common uh in brussels so you know kind of illegal corruption legal corruption is uh, quite very common i would say but illegal corruption isn't that common but it's certainly not new i mean you know i mean we, we you know we we, we should we shouldn't forget that you know in 1999 the entire commission that oversaw the introduction of the euro, the Santer Commission was forced to resign in mass uh, because of allegations of corruption. You know, and this was uh, the commission that had overseen probably you know, the most uh, consequential, monumental, uh, uh, you know, um, one of the most monumental steps in in, in European uh, in the history of European integration, which was you know, and they were all involved in a massive corruption scandal. You know, so this isn't exactly uh, you know something that the European Union uh, is completely new to. But I, I want to take a step back here. Um, there was a large political scandal involving Qatar a few years ago, but it wasn't Brussels; it was Paris. In 2016, there was a book called Nos Très Chers Emirs, about the, uh, the Emiratis having significant influence over politics in France. And actually, the journalist who published the book even accused a French deputy minister of having received from money from Qatar. Um, another political scandal which recently rocked a few feathers 
in Germany. There was a scandal where German conservative MPs used political connections to earn about 2 million euros in different mask buying deals. The reason I'm bringing this up is those are political scandals of similar scales and who are, you know, as morally grey, if not black, black, than the one we saw in Brussels. But I don't think in both of these cases we were kind of thinking that it was kind of an existential crisis. We thought it was kind of even either rotten apples or that we needed kind of more stringent transparency rules whatsoever. Do you think there is a difference between those kind of uh, local national corruption scandals and one we are seeing nowadays in Brussels? Or maybe actually do you think there's a more general point that is that the EU needs to be on a higher standard than national politics? starting with Frank. Well, I don't think the EU uh, needs to be at, uh, at a higher standard than any other political institution, and manifestly it isn't, despite its claim to you know, uh, play to different uh, sort of script than uh, the national governments. The issue at stake here is this. Uh, you can have scandals like the one you mentioned in France and in Germany, and we had many scandals also in England, involving Middle East uh, operatives and, and local politicians or Chinese uh, sort of operatives and, and local politicians. So these kind of uh, small-scale scandals uh, exist and, and, and continue to flourish throughout the continent. However, uh, the impact of a scandal on a national government or a national political institution is very different than the impact of a scandal on the European Union. And the reason for that is because, for better or worse, uh, the national institutions are more able to absorb it. They don't face the same degree of, of, uh, of legitimacy crisis, or at least their crisis of legitimacy is of a different order than that of the European Union. And therefore, uh, its impact on, on, on political life is much more uh, mediated than it is in the Brussels case. Now, the thing that I really want to emphasize which is, which is almost always overlooked, is that the legitimacy crisis of the European Union is a very long-standing problem. And the European Commission has spent loads and loads of resources to try to minimize this. They, they, they've initiated numerous public relations campaigns, propaganda campaigns. They're continually trying to create an image uh, of altruism and, of, and of, non, of the fact that unlike government, other governments, they have no national interest to pursue. They're somehow more universalistic. Somehow they've transcended the petty, grubby details of national governance. So they spend a lot of resources into this. And one of the strategies that they adopted is to outsource their political decision-making to non-governmental organizations. By outsourcing political decision-making to non-governmental organizations, they're trying to harness the, the moral authority that NGOs possess. And, and NGOs, whether we like it or not, have tremendous moral authority. They're the only political institution that many idealistic young people want to join. You know, NGOs like Médecins Sans Frontières or NGOs like Oxfam appear to be purer than pure in the eyes of, of sections of the public. And the EU has been using these NGOs to front its political activities in many, many respects. It, it uses their experts, their consultants. It uses NGOs to promote its values throughout, uh, throughout the continent. But now, 
the NGOs for the first time have been caught out in, in a way that's totally unexpected, and their own authority is now put to question. As a footnote, I should add that this has already happened in Africa, because in Africa there's been numerous scandals involving Western NGOs, from sex scandals to bribery to basically promoting a sort of um, pro-natal, uh, anti-natalist policies, uh, birth control, in a that masquerades, not just abortion, but forcing uh, sort of uh, people to have contraception, uh, permanent contraception, in, under the guise of providing medical advice. So there's been numerous scandals in Africa. And in Africa, NGOs are regarded as, as, as just as suspicious as the corrupt politicians that plague their continent. But in Europe, it's a different story. And that's why I think uh, it kind of compounds the legitimacy crisis. And, that, and to me, that is very distinct. It's very different than the problems that uh, afflict uh, the nation states. Um, Thomas, we'll, we'll go back to you in a second. But Frank, would you mind going um, a, a little further in the details of how, what part of the NGO have played in the Qatar gate and how that kind of informs the kind of larger influence they have on EU politics? Well, I, I think what's happened is that uh, the, uh, m the main individuals involved in the promotion of human rights, uh, the MEPs, the, uh, the, the committee, has, has had a very close collaborative relationship uh, with a number of uh, human rights NGOs, such as Fighting Impunity. Uh, and these NGOs, if you look at their website, they, you, know, you, you just want to fall in love with them because hmm. they, they kind of promote themselves as almost as a quasi-religious organization. Therefore, human rights, they, they want to help the world, you know, they want to fight injustice. I mean, the language they use you know, sounds like a, an old-fashioned Sunday school preacher uh, who just basically, you know, sort of cannot help but do good all the time. But when you actually look at the, I, I did a bit of research on their website. It is entirely impression management. They, they're not really doing anything except once in a while organizing some kind of conference uh, in order to provide photo opportunities. But what's interesting about it is that the people that work for these NGOs uh, at the higher level are, are deeply uh, inter interlinked with leading uh, politicians, socialist politicians and the human rights committees who are on their board. And I think that uh, when you dig deeper, what you're finding here is that you've got this extremely pompous uh, sort of movement who probably believes that they're beyond reproach, but because they are beyond reproach, they're also beyond law and they're beyond accountability. And I think under these circumstances, you can almost imagine that they develop a psychology where they actually probably believe that it's totally cool, you know, to take uh, 300,000 euros from a, a, a Middle East uh, sort of operative. And there's nothing really wrong with that because we're good people, not like these conservatives or right-wing fascists that inhabit, uh, you know, sort of the European Parliament. And probably they convince themselves that they've earned this money, just earned this money because they've behaved in such an impeccable, uniquely sacred kind of fashion. Um, Thomas, any thoughts on, on, on the kind of NGO conversation? But also, I think the question I asked earlier to Frank about, you know, scandals happen, but mm. is the EU less... Can you afford fewer of these scandals than national institutions? 
Uh, well, I mean, honestly, I mean, you first you said that this, you know, is this an existential scandal for the EU? I don't think it is at all an existential scandal. I mean, I think uh, we all, we, we got to put this in perspective, and I think we got to re- you know remember that uh, uh, most Europeans, the overwhelming majority of Europeans, uh, I would wager. Uh, you know, couldn't care less about Qatargate and probably don't even know about Qatargate and aren't really that interested in Qatargate. Uh, you know, we know most Europeans, uh, I would say probably more than 90% of Europeans don't even know who the president of the European Parliament uh, right. is, uh, let alone the vice president. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're political pundits, we're EU pundits, we, we love discussing this stuff and of course, you know, it's, it's important. But I think we, we also got to remember that I think the impact of this beyond, you know, that that kind of EU bubble of which I think you know we're part, uh, and, and you know even 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 EU critics are part of that bubble, uh, you know simply because we engage with the European Union, where most people really are uh, very very uh, detached and uninterested in what happens in Brussels. You know that's just a, a fact. You know which the European Union has been uh, you know having to grapple with for for forever and. Uh, um, you know, I think you know this simply confirms what 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 we've known for a very long time, and what we know to be true, and what we know will continue to be true for a very long time. And that is that you know the overwhelming majority of Europeans have no emotional attachment whatsoever to these uh, institutions. You know, and that relates to deeper problems, the lack of a European demos. Uh, you know, I mean, mm. people. You know, the demos is still very much identified. You know, uh, nationally identified, despite decades of you know, publicity campaigns, resources poured into, uh, you know, these campaigns, you know, what I would call outright propaganda about the European Union, you know, and a full on, you know, kind of uh, uh, narrative push uh, through the mainstream media that has been going on for years, uh, actually decades, people still have a much stronger attachment and all studies tell tell us that uh, this much stronger attachment to that uh, to their country than to uh, than, than to Europe, you know. I mean, and that, that's just the fact. And in fact, the the numbers haven't really changed that much over the past twenty years, you know. Yeah. And so, really, uh, as Frank was saying, all the EU can really uh, uh, you know claim, uh, you know, the only real claim that it has, and this has been a founding myth uh, of the European Union. And I highlight kind of you know the, the myth aspect of this is that it's you know more civilized that it represents an anchor of stability, of rule of law, of expertise vis-a-vis you know these you know this dirty, chaotic, uh, unpredictable, intrinsically corrupt politics that goes on at the national level. And you know. Uh, um, maybe I, uh, I'm, I'm particularly aware of this as an Italian because this has been a crucial aspect of the kind of pro-EU uh, propaganda push that we've been hearing for the past 30 years. You know, this idea that we need kind of, you know, this, uh, the external constraint of the European Union because this will kind of, you know, keep us anchored to modernity and civilization. Um, and, and so as Frank was saying, it's, um, it, it's absolutely fundamental, you know, that this very cold institution that isn't able to inspire uh, any kind of, you know, you know, profound emotional bond at least has to be able to inspire respectability and, you know, stability, expertise and respect of, of, of the law. You know, I mean, if it loses that, you know, what's left really for, for this organization? And then very briefly on the, um, on the question of the NGOs, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I, Frank is completely right. I mean, I think we, 
we really have to completely, you know, uh, we need a, a paradigm shift in our way of thinking about NGOs. Not all NGOs, of course, but, you know, we know some of these NGOs, I mean, the biggest NGOs are incredibly powerful. I mean, we don't realize that, you know, exactly. They still have this kind of combative, you know, rebellious uh, veneer about them. But, I mean, these, these the, the biggest NGOs are part and parcel of the uh, of the global elite. I mean, you know, they... they they, they, they dine and party with the world's uh, uh, most powerful people, with the, with the world's biggest corporations and with the world's wealthiest people in Davos, you know? And I think, um, especially now that capitalism is involved in this kind of, you know, re, you know renewed attempt at moralizing itself through all these uh, environmental, uh, you know, ESG uh, uh, credit scores and so environmental, social and, you know, rules of, of, of various kinds to kind of give itself, you know, to kind of greenwash and whitewash its uh, its image. I think NGOs will uh, actually increase their power because uh, corporations will increasingly need kind of, you know, the, the rubber stamp of these NGOs uh, to be able to present themselves to uh, to the public and to consumers as being good corporations. I think what we're going to see is a, a progressive intertwining of corporate and NGO uh, power in the coming years. Yeah, yeah. This is th this is tremendously interesting. This is going to make for uh, for very juicy uh, clips. Uh, what you've just uh, walked us through there, Thomas. Just staying on you, and then uh, switching back to Frank. But just staying on on this for for a second. In your in your reaction piece uh, on 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 hurt following the scandal, you seem to be you seem to take a, sort of a realist look, right? Of saying. You know, this is par for the course when you amass so much power supranationally in the European Union, right? When you've got so much uh, of, of the continent's future being decided in Brussels, then it is only natural that you're going to have foreign governments who are willing to influence the workings of the EU to sort of uh, approach individual MEPs. And I think that deals with the, um, so to speak, the, the demand of corruption opportunities. But what about the supply, Thomas? I, I would like... For you to maybe give us a little bit of comment about why is it that we're seeing these young members of the European Parliament who don't seem to have much of an ideological spine, they're actually only very ambitious and they're willing to, uh, they're, they're very willing, uh, they're actually happy when they, they get approached by Qatar or Morocco for, uh, for fully paid trips to uh, Doha or whatever. Um, what, what is, what, what, what's your view on sort of the, the, the supply of corruption opportunities in the EU? Do you think that uh, that people making their way in the parliament or the commission are uh, naturally more inclined to um, to these feats of corruption than maybe nationally. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean that, that that's a very good question. I mean, I, I uh, now I don't know if there's a uh, you know uh, how to say kind of a pull factor you know uh, in the European Union itself whereby it kind of attracts the worst kind of people. I mean, I think. I think there is that aspect to it to a certain extent. I mean, I think if you um, if you are uh, someone who the kind of person who gets into politics just for you know uh, for for one's own self enrichment, just to uh, you know uh, to 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 to, to, um, to uh, uh, you know if you don't do it for you know grand lofty ideals, but you really do it you know because you want to uh, you you want you want to get richer. Um, uh, I, I think you know the, Euro the European institutions are, are very attractive, uh, in part for the reasons that Frank was saying earlier, because you really uh, you, you operate 
uh, really outside of any form of oversight, of democratic oversight whatsoever. I mean, I think this is really, really important. I mean, uh, national uh, MPs, uh, I don't know about, oh, I mean, other countries, but I know it's, I know of similar things in other countries. You know, you've got journalists that are, you know, and, and, and all sorts of, you know, news programs and, and, and people trying to trick you, you know, right outside of the parliament and asking you questions, hoping that you'll, you know, give a wrong answer so then they can, you know, I mean, you've got all that kind of stuff, you know, so, uh, and, and so a national MP, you know, tends to have quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot of attention, or at least, you know, some attention, you know, you can't, ex- you can't exactly disappear inside the, uh, inside national parliament. So at least it's not, it's not, that easy. Um, on the other hand, inside, I mean, in the European Parliament, you you really you you go you go below the radar. I mean, once you're in there, you know that you can pretty much do whatever you want. Be uh, and and hardly anyone will be looking at what you're doing. You won't there, there won't be uh, journalists, you know, uh, outside of the of the European Parliament, uh, you know, asking you tough questions or trying to embarrass you in any way, uh, simply because there's no public demand for that kind of thing, you know. And so uh, you can you know that you can pretty much uh, you know do or not do. Uh, whatever you want, and the consequences will be uh, will be minimal, um, if any. Uh, and so I think again, you know, this points to what you were saying earlier that there's a structural element here that has to do with the, uh, you know, with the supranational and, and nature of these institutions, with the fact that these institutions are so, you know, uh, physically, you know, geographically, psychologically, linguistically, in many way, in many respects, detached from ordinary people, uh, much more than national politicians are, um, that, you know, um, they, I think they create a context where, you know, uh, the, 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 this kind of uh, of of uh, of corruption, uh, where people can be e- you know much more easily um, involved in this kind of in this kind of corruption, you know, if anything, because you know it's it's, it's easier to get away with it, um, and so you know. Uh, so and this is a real problem, you know, because it's you know how <laughs> I don't think there are any uh, really easy solutions. I mean that you know Brussels will remain you know as physically and psychologically uh, psychologically distant from uh, most Europeans as you know uh, as it is now uh, for for a very long time you know and so uh, so you can you can you can come up with you know forms of institutional tinkering and you know new rules and regulations to try to control these people but at the end of the day uh, it, it, you know you're still hoping that the system will uh, oversee itself because there is no democratic uh, oversight because there is no demos. You know, I mean, there is no people that are looking at you. You know, they're just not looking there. Well, yeah. Um, for you know, for, for, for the reasons I, I've said. You know, and so uh, and I think there's uh, so I think this is and um, to a certain degree an insurmountable uh, problem. Uh, you know, and um, you know, and 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 even though I, you know, and I, I'm even very skeptical of the idea that the the solution is to, you know, uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna democratize uh, the European Parliament, give more power to the European Parliament, kind of standard left, uh, you know, critique slash proposal um, of the European of 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 the Euro, of, of the EU. Um, honestly, I mean, are we short of giving these people that operate in this kind of environment even more power? Is the is the solution because I mean. The problem is a double problem because on the one hand you have people that uh, you know that, uh, operate with hardly any uh, democratic oversight whatsoever, while at the same time um, you know potentially uh, legislating for you know 
hundreds of millions of people, you know, I mean, way more people than any national politician legislates for, you know, and so, and again, you know, I think this is why uh, lobbyists of all kind, be they private, be they corporate, or be they, you know, third, uh, you know, third governments, foreign governments, uh, um, very much like the idea of the European Union, because mm. if you're a lobbyist, I mean, of course, it's better to lobby, you know, to lobby one institution that mm. oversees an entire continent around with hardly any oversight whatsoever, rather than having to lobby, you know, 30 different, uh, you know, uh, uh, governments. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so I think, you know, and, and again, this relates to, you know, really deep structural problems, I think, which make the European Union prone to corruption. I mean, uh, you know, illegal corruption as in this kind, but even, you know, I think even more fundamentally institutionalized corruption. Yeah, this is tremendously important. And I think it, it calls to mind the uh, sort of the vision of uh, Jean Monnet, one of the main reasons why he cared so much to have a European commission in Brussels insulated from national lawmaking was that it was going to be easier to pursue policy. And just like you've just said, it's also it's also easier for lobbyists to uh, make their case when there's a single um, institution there. Uh, just shifting gears, Frank, and maybe talking a little bit about uh, Hungary. Uh, it's, it was slightly ironic uh, that um, um, that uh, the, the parliament has been really kind of agitating heavily for the, the for the EU to act against Hungary on supposed rule of law grounds, and uh, all of a sudden here comes a scandal where uh, um, many of the um, uh, MEPs who are actually involved in those kinds of issues like human rights, legal issues, home affairs are actually uh, entangled in this corruption scandal. What, what's the, um, how do you think this is going to change the politics around Hungary? Well, Hungary has got a very important role to play in the eyes of the uh, European Commission because uh, Hungary has become unwittingly or accidentally over the last five years uh, a kind of uh, natural target uh, that can be uh, sort of attacked time and time again in such a way as to try to create a kind of moral contrast between uh, the moral authority of, of, of the NGO EU land and, and their kind of commitment to human rights, their commitment to the rule of law, their commitment to everything that is good, uh, and just, uh, as opposed to the evil regime that prevails in Budapest, which ignores human rights, ignores justice, ignores the rule of law. And one of the things that I've noticed since I've been in uh, Brussels is that uh, the, that Hungary is actually a, an important, has got a, a very important role for them that they will never let go of, because uh, as long as they can portray Hungary as this moral contrast, uh, as, as this kind of unique focus for authoritarian, right, far-right, you know, sort of unjust kind of regime, they can kind of create a, co a sense of coherence among themselves. And they've been very, very successful because uh, on, as far as Hungary is concerned, they managed to mobilize not just simply the, the usual suspects, the far left, the Greens, the left and the center, but they've even managed to bring in the EPP, the, the, the conservative bloc within the European Union, who uh, are almost embarrassed about the fact that they, are, they like uh, the Hungarian government, are called conservative. And when you talk to them one-to-one, -one, 
you know, they often will tell you that, yes, Frank, you're right, most of this propaganda uh, is really uh, not worth the paper that it's written on. It is entirely performative with, with, with no real content to it. But at the same time, they will tell you that, you know, you know the, the hostility is so powerful, uh, the demand that you stay on this side uh, of the divide or the, you know, between evil and goodness is so powerful that many people that actually know what's going on in, 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 in this respect are too scared to open their mouth and are, are not prepared to actually you know, tell it like it is. So it's been an extremely successful project on the part of the European Union, which I don't think was actually intended to be a project. It began in bits here and there. And then gradually they began to realize that this is, the, this is a very unique way in which they can create this kind of moral pole between, between good and evil. And, and, and this polarized ideology has become really quite important. So in that sense, when the rule of law is, uh, is thwarted and uh, rendered corrupt by precisely those people who swear on the Bible of, of the rule of law, then it begins to uh, sort of expose uh, the, uh, the thin foundation on which this moral uh, polarization has been invented and constructed. And I think that uh, uh, certainly for me, one of the most important thing about the scandal is that it, 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 is that it indicates that at the end of the day, you know, the whole uh, attempt to turn the rule of law into this uh, moral ideology uh, is is actually unlikely to survive for a very, very long time because we know from human history that a legalistic uh, sort of ideology that relies entirely on, on, on legal instruments lacks the moral depth to uh, engage with people and to, uh, and, and, to, and, to, and to get people to feel that they can identify with something very, very real. As you probably will understand, you know, when people get up in the morning and brush their teeth, they don't say, oh, the rule of law, that's the high point of my life. That's what I, I really believe in. That's what I'm really kind of committed to. That doesn't really exist. And therefore, once the uh, underpinning of this moral project are called into question by reality, I think it can have some very important uh, sort of uh, beneficial consequences, which is why I think that uh, for people like myself, uh, engaging and, and attacking and criticizing and exposing the way that this whole rule of law NGO network works and what they are really all about is really, really quite important because in many respects, it's a research project that's not unlike uh, uh, the fairy tale about the little boy uh, basically exposing the emperor for having no clothes. I think that's really what we're begin, beginning to see, hopefully. And it's quite important that we don't allow the emperor to suddenly find some new garment with which to uh, obscure uh, uh, his, uh, his kind of rather ugly and disgusting and corrupt body. So this episode on Qatargate and the lessons from the scandal is uh, over. Frank and Thomas are both out. What did you think about this episode, Francois? Um, when, when we created this podcast two years ago, 
we knew we needed the outro to be the outlets for us to kind of uh, voice out our own voices because we don't think, you know, the podcast format is the best format to have this kind of back and forth of debates with people who disagree too much. But that also creates a bit of frustration on, on our side sometimes because you, you want to bump in, you want to bump in, but you also realize that it's not the right medium for that. So I had a few thoughts on Joshua Dama as we were going on. And, you know, as much as I, I thought a lot of the criticism that was leveled on the European institutions and, you know, the lack of the European demos and so on, um, you know, as much as I, I think there's a fair criticism and, you know, the, the fact there is no European people, no European demos is one that I've made on this podcast multiple times before. So, I, you know, I wasn't very surprised that this came up a lot. But I actually think that this was a conversation I had from people around this kind of circle of the Grand Continent um, in Paris, kind of more kind of Euro-Federalist voices. And I think there's actually a case here to be, to be made that in most EU countries, MEPs are unknown. There is little media scrutiny or even interest for what happens in Brussels. That means that actually Brussels is usually, EU, the EU is usually more popular than, than government or kind of regional levels on average. But I would think it's popular because people don't really know what's going on. You know, they kind of associate good things to, to things they don't really know. But I think that the Qatar gate, while it's 100% going to dent, I think, the image of the EU, as you know, to the extent that people actually have heard about it, I think actually there is a case here that Eurofederalists will need to make, which is EU politics need to become more central and more important because that will, in a sense, create the level of scrutiny, the checks and balances that you would need in a policy for those, for that to happen. And I actually think that more criticism of the EU, more conversation about the EU will actually be, even if a conversation can be very negative, a good thing for the EU. I think the EU must not be afraid to accept criticism, to, to have those controversies, because it will create within the EU a space for conversation and debate that will make people more familiar with the EU that will create, and by, by conversation, by those debates, you actually, you know, at a very small level, but you are creating this European people. Um, so I, I, it's going to be interesting to see, to see what happens. There's probably going to be a lot, of, a lot of changes. My understanding is one of the reasons Qatar got so far is because the rules for um, state lobbies, if I, if I can call them that, are quite different from the rules to kind of corporate lobbies. So that's why Qatar managed to go so far. Um, but yeah, I'm also quite, I mean, I, talk, I talked about it on a podcast, but some of it just sounds so amateurish. I, I, if I was running a, a corruption corruption scheme, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be this blatant. I mean, just money lying around in, 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 in big packs of cash. Um, I don't know. This seems like incredibly amateurish to me. And I'm, I'm actually quite shocked by how, you know, I think I think maybe a lot of it is due to how in you know in, in some Middle Eastern countries it's quite normal to give gifts to everything, but when it means that you get you know a a a high civil servant from the EU Commission in the transport direction, who is making a deal with um, Middle Eastern countries, and has regular flights all paid for in business class to Qatar, really it beggars belief. I mean it's quite really really staggering. 
Yeah, and I think uh, one of the one of the most interesting aspects of this episode was that it began as a uh, sort of a factual recollection of what had happened, and very soon morphed into a deeper reflection on the EU itself, how democratic it is, how undemocratic it is, how prone it is to corruption cases of this nature. Um, and in a way, I mean, you, I mean, Qatargate really is a mirror being held up at the EU in which the EU can look at itself and realize that, as Thomas, I think, argued, there, there is far too much power amassed in Brussels away from the scrutiny of, de- of national democracies for there not to be this kind of corruption. This is this, the, cases of corruption like this one are the natural uh, uh, consequence of amassing so much power in, in, um, in Brussels. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, I thought I thought it was very interesting how Thomas reminded everyone that the Jacques Santerre Commission in the late 1990s that had masterminded the uh, the ushering in of the euro was uh, had to resign en masse. So uh, corruption is by no means uh, a novel phenomenon in Brussels. But um, but yes, I mean, I think I mean, in my in my case, it has proved it has proved rather uh, easy to ref- to think about this issue uh, as being uh, as being as as the meeting between a supply and a demand of corruption opportunities, uh-huh. right? Um, foreign governments like Qatar and Morocco are demanding corruption, and MEPs like Eva Kaili are supplying the uh, corruption opportunities, and um, and there's a market there. Um, uh, that uh, that I think is uh, happening. No matter how how no matter how much you try to shoehorn, uh, so the the contact between the EU and, and other third party states, third parties. No matter how far you try to shoehorn that into diplomacy, there's always going to be some uh, some room for uh, for sort of below the below the radar. Uh, influence battling and that kind of thing. So I, th- I, I mean, I, I happen to share, I broadly share Thomas's realism when he says this is the natural result of amassing so much power in Brussels. But this is where I think I, lit- I disagree a little bit because I gave you know examples in the podcast of very similar and you know just as egregious cases of corruption that happen in in you know in different countries in in Germany in France. Uh, Thomas even gave an example of Italy. Um, but I think where things are a little different is since the EU isn't representing a people, um, since this legitimacy is harder for them to get, there is a backlash that is that much stronger when there is a case of corruption. I, I I don't, you know, I, as much as I, I, I kind of intellectually agree with the argument that if there is, you know, too much power in one place, that will attract corruption. I actually think you could also make the, 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 the other case, which is the lack of, you know, the lack, you know, you could also say, well, that means we need to push our democratic life closer to Brussels because this is where big decisions are being made. But wanted to go a little bit into the kind of geopolitical aspect of the conversation, which we didn't quite have time to tackle, but 
I was quite, this is something that really has stayed with me after our episode on, on Polish history. It's the way the Polish parliament, the Polish political system, was used, especially the, the, the same, the, the parliament, was used by foreign actors to immobilize or paralyze or, or push foreign interest through the national political body. And, you know, the same, for example, you'd always had one or two M MPs who were paid by Russia or by Prussia or by Austria to push their interests and paralyze the whole system. Um, to some extent, we are seeing this a risk of, in an era where politics and geopolitics will be more important than ever, in an age where there is a return of, you know, big power competition rights whatsoever, it seems to me that the European Parliament risks becoming this very obvious weakness, this kind of backdoor for foreign powers to quite cheaply, because, you know, the money thrown around is, is obviously quite a lot for normal people, but for, for countries like Qatar, it's really peanuts. Um, you know, there's a risk that this happens down the road. So some people will make the case that we need more checks and balances and we need a, a stronger EU, EU parliament. And that m might be the case, but we also have to be very, very careful of doing that if that means that it allows countries, you know, countries of the Middle East, Russia or China, to be able to push their interests. And I had this, this quote I found um, when I was preparing this episode by um, this guy who's an expert on, uh, obviously, the moment I talk about it, I can't find it. Um, okay, yes. So lobbying expert Ben Freeman from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington said on, on this story, the Qatar gate is the tip of the iceberg. For every cockroach you see, there are 20 more behind the cabinet. Now, that's something that actually terrifies me a little bit, is maybe we found Qatar, because Qatar was you know, very egregious, very direct, very poorly organized. But maybe there are much more kind of subtle constructions in the back that should really, really be terrifying us. So, yeah, the foreign policy angle to this conversation is one that should really get our attention going forward. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And with that, that closes the outro. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. See you at our uh, next episode uh, next week. Don't forget, if you like Uncommon Decency, there's a few things you can do to help the show continue to grow. If you want to listen to the entire conversation, and I notice now that we've been talking a lot about the, outro, about the part where we were in our patron-only section, um, if you want to have access to the full episode where we talk about uh, many, many more things, we essentially give you twice as much content, you can subscribe to our patron for as little as five euros a month. If you can't afford that, don't worry, there's plenty of other ways you can help the podcast continue to grow, such as writing a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, reviewing the podcast on Spotify, sharing the podcast with friends, sharing it on social media. So, so many small things you can do to help us week after week continue to grow the podcast, allowing us to pay for our equipment and build more ambitious projects we have in the background. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you.